You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Welcome to a very special Two Guys Talking Wine. And hopefully this will be the first of a series of podcasts that we're going to do where we're going to take an opportunity to sit down and talk to some of the movers and shakers and pioneers of the Ontario wine industry. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Pincus. Happy to be here. Now, last week we were lucky enough to sit down with Donald Zeraldo, who, for the people in my generation, might not know is essentially one of a couple of people responsible for kick-starting the Ontario wine industry back in 1974. That sounds right, yes. And I and I have to be honest, I uh, hosted him at my basement in, in my studio, and I was... It, it, I had butterflies, like having it was like having the queen or the prime minister over, uh, you know, to sit in your basement, and it was like uh, I don't think my basement's good enough. And the best part about talking to someone like Donald is, even though, like, this is a guy who, when he's at a wine tasting, is wearing his Order of Canada pin. Like, he's a big deal. He's kept, important. I kept looking at it all night. I'm like, yeah. oh my god, this man's in my house. I mean, this is this is a big deal, but he does not act like someone who's a big deal. No, he actually. It was interesting. He he was a little bit late. He had thrown on all his clothes. He didn't shave. Um, you know, we couldn't get pictures of him because he just he wasn't he wasn't a hundred percent, as I would say, ready and put together. But he was still put together. Great thoughts, and I don't think he said exactly what you wanted him to say. Now, now this is the reason why we're we're recording an introduction to this podcast was. I was expecting to sit down with one of the, the men responsible for founding the Ontario wine industry and kind of timelining everything because, as I like to say, and I'm going to continue to tag this, I was born in 1983, so I was legal drinking age in, like, 2003, like, 2002, which means, fortunate for me, I've never had the opportunity to drink a bad, in air quotes, bottle of Ontario wine. I didn't have to deal with the growing pains we talked about Andre, baby. Andre didn't deal, deal with Baby Duck. How about that? Absolutely. Even though my name is on the bottle, it's from Andre's Wines. Yeah. Andre, Andre's Baby Duck. Yeah. He has them in the bathroom. But I think it's important that we know where we started, and we're very fortunate in Ontario to still have almost all of the pioneers available to talk to. And I was expecting a timeline from Donald. And needless to say... What we got was Donald unplugged, and I thought it was exactly what we needed this is a little bit longer than our regular podcast and if you're a regular a regular listener to this podcast it's important that you know that when we do these interviews they are going to run a little bit long but there is no way you're not going to be entertained I, I i i was entertained and i was there and there's a great bottle of wine that's open oh shut up again Yes, uh, unfortunately, I was in my studio in Toronto. Michael was in his studio in St. Catharines. And without further ado, our conversation with Donald Zeraldo, the founder of Inniskillen. Please enjoy. I do have um, uh, right here with me is uh, is Donald Zeraldo, uh, along with a, a cheese platter and the oldest bottle of Inniskillen wine that I have in my cellar, a 2002 Cabernet Franc Reserve, which we're going to open uh, at some point. Uh, and Andre, you got what? A bottle of water? I'm actually just drinking water today. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I do know the the oldest bottle of, of Inniskillen that I have in my cellar is a bottle of 2008 ice wine that I'm setting aside for my sister-in-law who can't save wine if her life depended on it, and I want her to know what old ice wine tastes like. You guys will have to come to my cellar. I have a few older bottles of wine, particularly ice wine, that you might be interested in. Well, if that's an invitation, I'm I'm certainly not going to turn you down. Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Zeraldo. So the first thing I should tell you, I'm co-founder. Yes. Carl Kaiser, who is my partner, was the uh, winemaker at Enniskillen. I never professed to be a winemaker. My background was in viticulture. And he's the genius behind the ice wine. He brought the idea to Canada with a bunch of his German friends. And, of course, he's been the genius behind the whole concept of creating a Canadian icon because... We pleasantly acknowledged the Germans invented it in the mid-1700s, but we took it, perfected it, and it was nice to be in Canada for a change, actually. I say a change because most people don't think of Canada as a wine-producing country. It's not top of mind. And uh, so when uh, 
I started going out around the world talking about ice wine. Everybody went, oh, of course. Canada, ice, freezing, cold. So it was an easy uh, concept psychologically to sell to the world once they put it in their mouth. It was a no-brainer. Yeah. Well, it's like you said uh, right now, for most people, they don't think of Canada front of mind as a, as a wine-producing nation. And I know just now, as the industry seems to be entering a bit of an adolescence, uh, it, it's it's people are starting to pay attention to it. But what made you think it was a good idea to grow grapes here? Well, you know, I, I like the idea. I have to uh, acknowledge that adolescence because I really think the industry is right now at a very adolescent stage. There are so many great young people gotten into the business. There are some great colleagues of mine that are still around that are, you know, doing a great job individually. But as an industry, it's such an adolescent situation that, you know, they really need to get their act together and have one singular organization that speaks on behalf of the entire industry from the grape growers through all the winemakers. And I mean the big ones, the little ones. And, you know, when that happens, then we can go to the world and talk about Canadian wine. Uh, we did that with the ice wine. The consumer bought into it, the, the global consumer. I mean, I can tell you that, you know, one of the great uh, things that I miss about being out there is guys like Piero Antinori and Robert Mondavi, who's, you know, passed away, Count Lourdes Salus, all these guys who acknowledged our wines, our ice wine, as, you know, a very unique, iconic product produced in Canada. And they were my biggest ambassadors. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I remember hanging around with these guys and Piero Antinori, for example, in New York uh, at uh, Four Seasons after a wine show. He invited me to his dinner. You know, they all do winemakers' yeah. dinners. And uh, Piero, you know, introduces wines and is very elegant. You know, the Marchese Piero Antinori, which everybody knows. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm actually serving some Vin Santo, but he said, if you want to taste a real dessert wine, he said, you got to try that guy's ice wine from Enniskillen. And he pointed, you know, to me in the audience. So, you know, that's the thing that made the whole thing worthwhile. Why did I get into it? My father was Italian. He grew some hybrid grapes because he couldn't drink Foxy Concord Labrisca tasting wine. I mean, they didn't even call it wine. Uh, they call it Fragolino back where I come from in okay. my family in northern Italy. And what, is that, met, what does that mean? What does that Fragolino, translate to? Yeah. I mean, Fragolino means strawberry. Oh, okay. It's okay. word for strawberry. And, you know, fruity. I wish it was as nice as strawberries. Yeah. And Carl had the same issue. When Carl came to Canada, because he married a Canadian, he came to my nursery because somebody said to me, there's a bunch of Canadians, uh, sorry, some Canadian guy down there growing some of those grapes that don't taste, you know, Canadian. And he came to my nursery, and that's how we met. So it, it wasn't really a, you know, I didn't sit down, develop a strategic plan. I, you know, did what any entrepreneur does. I looked at something, thought there was an opportunity, because if you could grow vinifera grapes in Friuli, where my family came from, they also grew peaches, cherries, apricots. I thought, why can't we? And Bright's Chateau Gay at the time were doing um, experimental work with Chardonnay, Gamay, Adamar de Chonac came here in the 40s from France. Paul Bosque was doing work at Chateau Gay. So, you know, it was all here. It just took a bit of, uh, I don't know what you call it, creativity or thinking outside the box to make a bottle of wine that didn't have a brusque in it. What was the first grape you put in the ground? First vine? Uh, the first vine was 1974. I planted 30,000 Chardonnay, Riesling, and uh, Gamay because I grafted all these vines in the nursery yeah. uh, and couldn't sell them because everybody said you couldn't grow vinifera commercially. So I had to plant them. I either had to burn them. So I bought a little farm, which is now the Seeger Vineyard, and planted 30,000 vines. Huh. And in fact, Michael Vaughn wrote a story in Toronto Life magazine, and I had hair then. There's a picture of me with hair and these little grapevines. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna, I've, I've got the bottle open finally. Uh, the cork broke, which is typical. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna pour this wine now. Uh, I looked this up in uh, Conrad uh, Edgebeck's 2005 book, which is the pocket book to uh, what was it? Andre, a pocket the guide to on, a pocket guide to Ontario wines, wineries, vineyards, and vines. And in 2005, he said, "Drink now through 2010." This is 2002. Two. It's a 2002 uh, Cab Franc Reserve. So. So we're. Uh... Just a little behind. We're a little bit behind. Cab Franc is, in my opinion, one of the varieties that, you know, we can do as a red. Pinot Noir is the other. 
I said to you guys at the Portuguese tasting, that the Sonora, the Convento Portuguese tasting that uh, we were at, that, you know, we, we should sort of give it up on Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. Yes, people can grow it as a cellar door thing. You can do it out of curiosity. But as a mainstream wine, Cabernet Franc, in my opinion, and slightly prejudiced probably because we do a nice Cabernet Franc ice wine. I always have. Yep. So I think it's a multi-purpose varietal, and um, I like it. It's, it's it's also something I, I know me and Michael have ta- I've talked about it, but it's something that I find, especially now that I've had a chance to travel to other places, that we do, unlike anywhere else. It's not Bordeaux, it's not Chinon, it's distinctly Ontario, and it's good year in and wow. year out, whether it's a warm vintage or cool vintage. I should I should be letting you say this, but that's I'm very impressed, <laughs> Andre. You're uh, you're really missing out. This well, is yeah, you are. <laughs> It's, it's really still very fruity, very it's still vibrant. The vibrant, acidity is yeah, still good. Yeah. Two thousand two, great year. Last uh, to uh, call Conrad, tell him to rewrite his yeah, book. He's, he's totally <laughs> wrong. Totally wrong on that one. This is great. Wow. Oh, this is a little bit painful. My, uh, well, I, I was telling you the other day, my great experience with the Cabernet Franc was that I had, and I, I'm sorry, I should have looked this up before I came for the interview, but the um, the um, Maitre de Chez, which is the winemaker at um, Cheval Blanc came to Niskillen years ago and uh, you know they make from 100% Cabernet Franc and he tasted it and he said to me I think this is a variety that might be okay for you guys because he was a little puzzled at you know the fact we were growing grapes here at yeah. all when he came to visit and he certainly got the ice wine but he made the comment about Cab Franc so he you know his support sort of lended it some very serious credibility to it. This is this is really really good. Sorry Andre. Uh, That's fine. You? you know what let's let's get a, a I guess a few tasting notes from you Michael. Um, well, I, I love there's there's still a, a cigar box note to this wine. Oh. Um, I'm just going to warn you, there's smoked Gouda in that. You don't like smoked Gouda? No, but I don't want to smoke out the wine. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a cracker that he's about to eat, so I just wanted to warn him. Anyway, I got, uh, there's still, there's still a dried fruit here. There's, uh, there's a dried raspberry, uh, there's a black currant still. All you know, all dried, but um, and some lovely tobacco cigar box yeah. still. And I like the structure because it's got a really nice mouthfeel to it, and it's got a good, good structural acidity mm-hmm. that keeps it very alive and vibrant, as as you said, vibrant in the mouth. Yeah, it's vibrant. The uh, the tannins are still are still uh, very much there. Um, yeah, and it's oh. a super long finish too. I, I can understand why uh, people are getting excited about wines from Niagara and. I know that everybody says the Okanagan is red. I've said it. You know, I mean, they do good Merlots and they do great reds. But you know, if we can do reds like this, and it's and it's in a good vintage because that's the other difficulty with the wine region here is that, you know, we get significant variability in the vintages. So it's it's very risky to do reds. Whites we do extremely well, and the ice wine, of course, in my opinion. And I really think we've dropped the ball on ice wine. I know I'm a ice wine guy, but I really think we've dropped the ball because my attitude is it's a great umbrella because you know we started. In a skill in 1975, we did hybrids, you know, we did Pinot Noir, we did all these varieties. But when the ice wine struck, man, it was a no-brainer. I mean, you know, all we did was, you know, make better packaging, increase the price because it, you know, created a luxury yeah. brand, put it in duty-free, put it on airplanes. And, and it creates a great umbrella because I remember going down to Paul Greco, you know, Paul, the good Canadian son of uh, Charlie Greco from La Scala, long before your time, millennials. <laughs> So Paul was at Tribeca Grill, and you know I kept going to New York. Good excuse to go to New York, and he said, "No, you know, I got your Cab Franc ice wine, I got your Riesling ice wine, I got your Vidal. Will you stop bugging me?" He said, "Do you have anything else you can sell me?" And I said, well, "You know, we have Chardonnay, Pinot." He goes, "Okay." He says, "But don't bring me entry level stuff." He said, "Because you've set the stage with Inniskillen to be ridiculously expensive, so bring me the best Chardonnay and Pinot Noir you have." So I took him the um, Montague Vineyard which is a single vineyard Chardonnay, mm-hmm. and the um, Pinot Noir from the Lowry Vineyard. Okay. And what, yeah. year, what, and what year would this have been? It would have been in, the, I think, the mid-'80s. Were you, not, were you not worried that uh, that we would be ghettoized, though? And I hate to use that word because that word just sounds wrong, but, I mean, ghettoized is as um, strictly an ice wine Making mean, country or a like, province? Uh, you mean like Burgundy or like Chablis or like 
New Zealand with Sauvignon Blanc yeah. or like Champagne with Or Germany. France, Everybody thinks of Germany. Riesling. When they think of Germany, they think Riesling and they think sweet. Yeah. That is pretty much what everybody goes to Magnificent. The I think it's a great idea. As you Canada, like that. As Canada, who nobody ever heard of. Yeah. Rather they drink an ice wine and go, oh my God, this is incredible. Then me take a Chardonnay to California and say, would you like to try my Chardonnay? And they're going, oh, sure. Just after I finish tasting these other 4,000 Chardonnays from California, maybe I get around to it. All right, he makes a point. <laughs> yeah, that is actually a, a really good point. I know, like you've said, uh, I think that was, was that before we'd hit record about someone dropping the ball on uh, on, on maintaining uh, ice wine? Well, I, yeah, I don't know if it was dropping the ball or not. I just think that, you know, we need to put our best foot forward and is unquestionably our best foot forward, both in the production quality, but also the, the, the image. Like if somebody says to me, oh, you're from Canada, you make ice wine, no problem. I tell them I make Pinot Noir and they go, where do you grow the grapes? I said, well, right beside the Vidal and the Riesling. Oh, really? Is it warm enough? And they started, you know, interrogating you about how you can do it, whereas they totally accept so it's really, as I said, it's a great umbrella to me because it opens doors. I mean, nobody has ever said to me, oh, no, thanks. I don't want your ice wine from Paris to London. My Zeraldo ice wine. What do I do? I didn't sell it here. You can't buy it in Ontario. You have to go to actually Rife Winery because that's where I actually physically make it. But it's in Paris. It's in uh, Hong Kong. It's in India. It's all over the world because I phoned up my distributors and said, guys, I'm making a little ice wine. You mind? Oh, send it. They didn't taste it. They just said send it. You know, you said something very, very interesting. Getting, getting a little bit back to the start of the industry, or, or where, where Andre said, what do you call it, an adolescence? Is yes. Yeah, adolescence. Okay. Yeah. And you said if we could find one voice. So you believe we don't have one voice? We have well, a whole bunch of voices. Well, we have, like it's fine independently. You know, winemakers are winemakers. Nobody's ever going to have one voice as a winemaker. They're like artists. Yeah. And they're entitled to their opinion and they're entitled to their, their style, and that's what makes wine great. No, you know, two wines are alike. But as an industry, like, you know, we're non-existent in the world. We used to be at Vin Expo. We used to be at Vin Italy. We used to be everywhere. Now, like, maybe we got spoiled because things are too good at home. You know, the tourism, agriturismo, if you can call it that, has been spectacular. But we really need to speak as one voice as an industry and get what we want. Like, excuse me, but this joke about wine in grocery stores, like, come on. They've taken, they've taken, a, they've stolen a few uh, wine stores from uh, the big guys and given it opportunity for VQA wine, and then they're going to introduce imported wine into grocery stores. Those stores are there now. I mean, that's revolutionary. Come on, I have a solution. I'm I'm all ears. Yeah, me too. Take vintages, privatize it, leave the general stores alone, and there are a million people, probably a lot of your millennial buddies, sommeliers, guys, and there are a lot of rich guys that buy wine that'll fund it, and have vintages as a free enterprise, you know, quality wines compete with the LCBO. Well, and it's even difficult to to be able to find ways to play within the, the, the system as it exists now. Like I'm a big fan of, of Beaujolais. Like I'm thrilled to hear that Gamay was one of the first grapes that you planted in the province because I'm, I'm convinced that that's one of the most underrated grapes on the planet. But to get my hands on some of the bottles that I really like from where I've traveled and from out of province, I have to order private order. I can't order just a half case or, or a few bottles, which is what's in my budget, because unfortunately, working in radio, you don't make a lot of money. Yeah, and it's tough to come up with a scratch. I don't want to buy twelve bottles of wine. You got my violin out. Fair <laughs> enough, but I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sort of stuck to play within the system that it's really hard to get the bottles that I want. Uh, with with well, the way I just think a, right a, a hybrid system, in my opinion, would move things along to the next level, and it would allow some competition. It would allow, uh, you know, the private sector to do that job that the consumer is looking for and uh then the lcb on that i was gonna i was speaking at terroir uh, you know this event in toronto about local food local cuisine and i suggested i had a beautiful slide i never got to show it but i had a slide of an lcbo building and it and the logo changed from lcbo to m and lcbo so that in order to make up for losing vintages they could introduce marijuana at the lcbo and <laughs> <laughs> make lots of money well even the idea of a hybrid system would would work because i mean it'll give you an opportunity to let some independent people bring products in that the lcb may not be willing to take a chance on but that's how the open market is supposed to work if i want to open a beaujolais boutique and the people in this fine city don't want to buy it 
that's my risk to take and and to fail. It's not up to the government to decide what products uh, are going to succeed or fail. There's a huge culture in, uh, I mean, I'll say Toronto because you know it's where where the act most of the action is. But you know, I'm sure in other cities. But there's such a huge interest, and in, I'm sure sommeliers would chomp at the bit to open them. And there are a lot of hu- serious bucks in Toronto that wine collectors, and yep. we all know them. I'm sure they'd love to fund these. And you could have a really uh, aggressive, very uh, high profile, like every other country in the world does, and leave the general distribution in the you know the outlying areas. Leave the other 500 LCBO stores alone. You know, and keep them going and. I think both can work simultaneously, and the industry will have a better, I think, especially the boutique wineries, because one of the difficulties the small wineries have, and I'm struggling with it now as being a little guy now. It's really funny because yeah. <laughs> I went from a little guy to a medium to a big guy, and then now I'm back to a little guy. And the frustration of the licensing and everything like that, I, I really empathize with these these small wineries because you really got to be dedicated. A guy like Norman Hardy, like Norman from Prince Edward County has done phenomenally. Yeah. But, well, you know, and, and he's delivering wine, flying to London, you know, it's well, just. You know, I've, I've talked to Andre about this, and I, I think our winemakers are a bunch of uh, really dedicated, passionate idiots. Uh, <laughs> you, you just gotta, you gotta be, you know, you have to have the passion for it. Because well, you, gotta, well, you gotta do it. If you don't do it, it's not gonna work. Because if you look at any other wine region, and I've traveled to all these wine shows around the world, and Robert Mondavi was always had his booth. Pietro Antinori was there. Dan Duckhorn was there. And I could go down the list. They were always at the table. And, you know, I wondered, how the hell do these guys get any work done? Because a guy like Angelo Gaia, he also makes the wine. Yeah. I mean, I had the luxury of having Kaiser at home making the wine. And I flew around and I had a pretty decent yeah. gig. Yeah. And these guys actually, Hardy's a perfect example. He's making the wine and he's running around. Yeah. So I, I think that, yeah, they deserve a lot of credit. And particularly in our wine region where it's hard to get acknowledged i mean let's face it you know when you put a our label on dqa or no vqa it's hard selling wine from niagara from the okanagan from canada well well, let's let's just not say they i mean why don't we go back to to 1975 and the conversation that we had uh, about the lcbo would be a perfect way to to seg into that i mean it's one thing to to plant grapes there's no laws to stop you from growing fruit but as soon as you decide to take that fruit and turn it into alcohol that's when the government gets involved. Uh, what made you think that was a good idea to apply for, what was it, the first license since Prohibition? Well, I, I have to share what happened two days ago. Okay. I was back in the office of General George Kitching that gave me the license. And it's a very short story, but when Carl Kaiser said to me, having brought me a bottle of his wine that he made at home that was made from Deshaunac, which, as you know, is a hybrid variety named after Adamar de Schoenack, the Frenchman that was kind of the first guy in the 40s to come here working for Bright's Wines to introduce some of these wines. Carl said, why don't you uh, sell the wine and I'll make it? And I said, well, Carl, it's not that easy. But I went to the LCBO, ended up after a few meetings, getting a letter from this guy, General Kitching. And he literally, and I, I never forget, in his office, walked around from this giant desk and said to me, you know, if you can make a decent bottle of wine, I'd really appreciate it because I used to drink some great wine when I was in the military in Europe during the war. And um, I just, you know, believed in the guy. He was one of my first mentors. And ironically, two days ago, I went to Toronto. I asked the new CEO, brand new guy, George Soleus, if he would mind having a meeting with me and so I could show my wife where it all started. So he opened the door and we went into the kitchen's office. It's really small. I remember it when I was 23 when I started. It was gigantic. Yeah. <laughs> it was so small. And and George was great. I think he's going to be a great CEO. I highly recommend that he go from acting CEO to chairman because I know he's applying for the job. So Catherine Wynn, if you're listening to this, give the guy a job. <laughs> he came from the lab. He's a very, very bright guy. Talking with him was very refreshing because he has great ideas about what he can do with the board to make it more user-friendly. So it it was very naive of me to think that we were going to do anything, that I think I was going to sell wine, you know, in Paris, in New York. My first trip was to see three guys, Johnny Arena at um, Winston's, not there anymore, the restaurant in Toronto. It was like, you know, the table thing. Greco, Charles, who's still alive, and he does the big OHI dinner, which we were at just the other night, and we, we actually donated the uh, 
the monastery, the Quinta that we have, mm -hmm. you know, in Portugal as a fundraiser. And the last guy was Frank Figo at the Three Small Rooms. And after the first two guys beat me up pretty badly because, you know, they sold French wine, basically. Yeah. And, and Charlie sold Italian. Both of them gave me good advice. But uh, Figo bought some wine. So I went home thinking, oh, I guess maybe there is a market in Toronto for this. And, uh, you know, it just grew from there. And then really the ice wine in 1991 when we award the uh, Grand Prix de Nure, that's what broke it open to the world. The Japanese got onto it and we milked that, you know, pretty well. Being near Niagara Falls was great and still is. You know, the, the tourism component for us acts as great ambassadorship for our wine because takes the message out loud and clear. Well, when you won that award in, in 1991, uh, I know that that's something that we see and we read about locally, but, uh, you know, given that I think even now ice wine is still not something that is a, a default for a lot of Canadian drinkers, how big of a deal was that in when you guys won that award? It was huge. It was like uh, winning the Academy Award and... And an Emmy. And, and an Emmy... Uh... You know, and the World Series, and well, what's what are the big five? What are the big five there? You can win a, an Emmy, a Grammy. Yeah. Well, EGOT. Oh, you know what? It EGOT. was as big as that shot that um, I, I got to remember what's his name, the guy that made last night at center court. <laughs> he dunked it with yeah. the bell rang while it was oh, in yeah. the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was it that shot uh, the Lowry the Raptors? Lowry. 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 That was as big as Lowry's shot. I mean, that's an impossible shot to do. They lost the game though. Yeah, have we won? Have we won the game? Like we haven't won the World Series of wine yet. So, so it was big. That was a huge monumental task, uh, and it was just a young man who was working for me in the import division that suggested we do it. And then, of course, we made sure that every media person in the planet heard about it. Yeah. So it was. It was your egot. It was the Emmy, the Grammy, it was the everything. Oscar, the it was Tony, yeah. and the shot. And we and still milk it. You know, we milk it for everything it's worth because it was the French blessing. So it would be like, you know, if you're Italian being blessed by the Pope, yeah. the French said this is the best dessert wine in the world. So, well, the, the thing that, that's, uh, it's worth. I, I, as I said, I don't generally spend a ton of money on wine, but I know you can still get a bottle of that 1989 Vidal from the winery. And I got to say, it, it, uh, the last time I was there, they said 500 bucks for a bottle, and it's awfully tempting to get a chance to... Oh, it's gone down. ...to try a piece of it's history. It's gone down in price. I was selling it for 750 if you okay. can get your hands on it. So. <laughs> See? Uh, all you have to do is wait, and it'll go down in price even more. But if you come to my cellar, we can open a bottle and do some comparatives, because I've got some in the cellar. So. All right, I'm still in. <laughs> the uh, the other thing with the industry, I think that it, you know, in, in the maturing phases, what's great now is that you've got a lot of professionals from all over... And the fact that we've got our own school here. Uh, oh, yeah. I was actually talking, I was in Aspen skiing, and I, I, I met um, the winemaker for um, um, Kendall Jackson. And Elizabeth, who graduated from Covey, works for him at uh, La, Grima, La Crema Winery. And he said that she is one of their most promising winemakers. And she also runs Oregon for their Oregon operation. So Covey has really helped in the sense that it's created a real great platform, not only for research, but for education, as has Niagara College. So having the academic base now that we can have our students study here, because what happened before is they, you know, they go to California or they go to Italy or France and for some Germany reason. Germany or Austria, there's Germany, a, there's yeah, a, yeah, a, yeah. a, a um, wine school in there. In Trier, yeah, Trier, yep. Italy. But for some reason, they didn't come back. I don't know why they'd want to stay in California or Tuscany, but... No idea. Well, it, it is interesting to see how the the industry is set up now. Like I know we've been saying the word adolescent a lot, but uh, we're now seeing that people from outside the, the country are starting to pay attention. We have a few Australians who are now working in the industry. We have a few Frenchmen who have, have come here. Uh, I think, I mean, we, have, I think the, we have more than a few. We have quite, a, we have quite a, mm -hmm. uh, an international yeah. uh, yes. winemakers who come to make wine here, which is odd because you'd think, why wouldn't you stay in Australia? Why wouldn't you no, stay you know in what? Italy? They, they, uh, they come. They, they want to come. I mean, we use them a lot. We use the students a lot during the harvest, but we get unbelievable amounts of requests. Uh, and I know all the wineries do because it's a work experience, especially the Aussies. And Philip Dowell, uh, after we decided we needed to get some, you know, management at Inniskel, and besides Carl and I running it, we looked around the world and we searched the globe and we ended up uh, hiring actually three Aussies. One was um, Philip Dowell who came to Inniskillen and then, um, oh, I can't forget, I can't remember his name, he, he was running um, uh, Vincor on the production side because he came from uh, uh, Brown 
in Australia. So there's a lot of them. And now that you'll see any number of them that are actually coming uh, and being employed. So we've got a great mixture of talent. And there's nothing better than getting these guys in our region to show us, you know, how to do things like they do in California, oh, Australia, have, or Germany, you know, you New have, Zealand. You have Craig McDonald, who's an Aussie. Yeah. You have Norm Hardy, who have mentioned. He's from South Africa, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and he, he's, he worked everywhere. He was a sommelier at the Four Seasons before he went to Oregon. He went to South Africa. I'm sure if we thought about it, we could think of all kinds of guys that are uh, trained elsewhere. Jackson Triggs, Marco Piccoli. Marco from Friuli. From Friuli. You know how he got here? Came on a tour with the University of Udine, and they translated my book into Italian. And he came back, he wanted to do a stage. And, uh, of course, he met a woman, and thank God for women, because he stayed. Yep. Thank God for women. Well, I, <laughs> I guess like this, if, if we want to go back just a little bit to the whole unifying voice, because you founded in 1975, and then in 1989 is when the VQA was founded. Yes. And uh, when VQA was founded, was that not a, a huge opportunity to unify the voice of the industry? Well, we unified the VQA and the, the producers of 100%. And what you've got now is they're kind of huddled, huddled together at the wine council, but then the larger wineries broke off. But it, unfortunately, it's all politics. And because we live in a very political environment, we've got the marketing board from the grower side, we've got the LCBO from the government side, and you've got the wineries in the middle. So, you know, my opinion, and I get beat up for this a lot, is we should just break the whole thing up, start over again and unify it as one singular voice because making wine is growing grapes. And if you don't have great grapes, you can't make great wine. And we're fortunate here that we have a lot of very talented uh, farmers who do a great job of supplying wineries with really good quality fruit. So, you know, that needs to be more and more rewarded. And the best way to do that is to charge a lot of money for the wine, like most other wine regions do, and compensate the farmer to produce the best quality grapes he can. So I think we, we just need to pull it all together. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to get beat up for saying all this. Especially Not by me. I'm totally well, with no, them so I'm far. talking about some of my, my peers in the industry. We just need to work together because we're on the threshold of greatness, in my opinion, with this wine region. Because cool climate wines are cool. And this young generation, these millennials, you know, they don't buy the Robert Parkers and the wine spectators like the traditional wine writers used to be bought into because people would walk in with a wine specter and say, I want this wine. Nowadays, they listen to blogs like this and all kinds of, you know, this Vanichuk guy who I thought was a maniac when I first heard him. Yep. Yep. But, you know, he's probably one of the biggest voices on air or was. And so I think the whole millennial group is their attitude is they taste the wine and then they just get on their uh, tweet and they tweet <laughs> million people and say i love this wine go buy it and that's what people do so and and, and, and i can i can t i can tell you that it actually goes a little bit beyond that that um i mean i i know i've 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 talked a bit about my pocketbook but i mean that's not the only thing but i mean when push comes to shove there's no way i'm going to be able to afford the wines that parker likes and when you get serious into wine you know who these people are and you know what the wine spectator is and you know about decanter but i mean it's it's out of reach and frankly when you take a look at, at my generation when we have the few dollars that we're able to uh, to put in into our hands, we're going to spend it on an experience and on something unique. And frankly, getting a really good bottle of Canadian wine that no one else on the planet has had a chance to, to try or rave about, I mean, that's something that we're going to do. And we know what tastes good. We, we don't need Robert Parker to tell us what tastes good. <laughs> if a wine doesn't taste good, I mean, we're certainly not going to say anything about it. Uh, you know, I've been trying to understand the millennials. It kind of came in just as I was getting up. But, you know, Gen X is the same thing. And, yeah, you're right. There's a whole different perception on wine. It's like, it's what I like, and I'm going to decide what I like. I don't need somebody to tell me. And then they'll tell their friends. And it's a very organic sort of growth. But I tell you, from a producer point of view, it's really tough to sort of figure it out. Mine, it used to be easy. I had a list of about, you know, a couple hundred wine writers around the world. I do a media release, press release, and I fax it to them, I think, and fax or mail it to them. I try to think how far back. And, you know, it took a long time. I had to put postage stamps in. I had to sign them individually. It was quite the ordeal. I'd have a full-time assistant to do nothing but make sure I sent the right one. Nowadays, it's such a wide open area. And I, I don't know if anybody's figured out yet exactly, not unlike the media in general, you know, who who's the consumer listening to as to, you know, guidance on buying. I think they just buy, try it, buy labels more now. I yes. think it's like that old mis 
Miss Clairol commercial, if you remember, you know, I, I she gets her hair done and she told two friends and they told two <laughs> friends and so on and so on. And then it just it just it just blossoms and that's really what it is. Well, I mean the thing is it's not just one group that, that people are, are trying to hit. Like I'm fortunate enough that I've fallen into a group uh, just because I've chosen to write about wine and as such I've been hanging out with a lot of people who cook and a lot of other people who drink wine. So it does turn into a bit of an, an echo chamber, but it is fun when someone does come out with something new that's that's worth talking about. I mean, I've been excited to see your new label on, on the shelf, and I know we're, we haven't got to that part of the, the story yet, but uh, you're doing your own your own wine. Like you said, you're making it at Rife. You're making ice wine with your name on the bottle. Well, after I... Um we were taken out of uh, the business because I intended to stay. I actually stayed for three months with when Constellation took over uh, Vincor and Eskillen. And it just didn't work. Carl was retiring, and you know I, I just don't fit very good. I mean, we created a rather corporate large winery with Vincor, and it's just not the culture of an entrepreneur. you know. So I left. I had a two-year non-compete, so what did I do? I went and planted a vineyard. I thought I'd got to keep myself busy doing something. And I took it back to the original Inniskillen property where I had started with Carl, and I tore out a 60-year-old orchard, planted Riesling, and I was chairman at the Vineland Research Station at the time, so I thought I better do it organic. I did it as a research block. There's five clones of Riesling from around the world, four rootstocks, and I and 214 was actually the first release of that wine, and I did only ice wine. I did some table wine, but that was just because I couldn't get the fruit to stand stay on the vine long enough because they're young organic vines i liked that table wine i'm disappointed that you're not making making any more of it no i don't i don't want to because then i got to go sell it and i got to start a whole campaign and you know try to convince people and there's a lot of people making riesling in niagara i, I don't need to i want to i want to step back just just a, a quick thing here and i've always wanted to ask somebody like donald this question what what do you think you know, we were talking about, you know, great grapes make for great wine, et cetera, et cetera. Pay them right. What do you think of our our structure of tonnage to buy grapes by the ton? Now, I'm sure you're going to, you know, give me that nice silence that I don't know if you can talk about this. But, <laughs> but, I, but I mean, I think it's the dumbest thing in the world to sell grapes by the ton. I want to get your your thoughts on that. I mean, if they, I mean, they all get sold by the ton eventually. But yeah. I know your point. Your point is that they should be paid for what they are. So well, the I farmers guess, I guess should be maybe... compensated for good quality. Yeah, get paid a lot for it. Yeah, I, I think. Grows... So, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I think we just need to maybe maybe clarify for people who who might not be familiar with how it works. If you're making wine, you're buying fruit by the ton, and it's a price that's set by uh, yeah, a body by, that's by regulated tons, by yeah. the government, and that's the price that it'll be. So, if you're growing fruit, uh, I mean, to get high quality fruit, often you will clip some of the the bunches of grapes that you have on your vines uh, we do that anyway but they get way you know you, you're going to get really complicated here very political so fair enough let's put it this way in most countries in the world you get paid for the grapes depending on the quality yeah and the deal should be between the winery and the grower period and a conversation so the rest everybody can figure out because there's people now screaming and if you had a call in at CFRB or whatever you call it now, 1010. News, news talk 1010. The phone would be going off the hook because there'd be people screaming, wanting to kill me and all both of you guys. But the fact is that if you look at, let's take a good example. I'll give you an example. New Zealand. If we can measure ourselves against anybody, New Zealand in the 1970s grew hybrids about 40,000 tons. We grew hybrids 40,000 tons of grapes. New Zealand now does 250,000 tons, and they are recognized globally for their Sauvignon Blanc, now for their Pinot Noir, and they're getting some recognition in other words. But Pinot Gris, yeah. Pinot Gris. Yeah. But the focus is Sauvignon Blanc. Let's Sauvignon face Blanc, it. If you're going to buy Noir, yeah. New Zealand, yep. it, they're ghettoized, yep. like we would like to be. Yeah. We should be there. Like, what are we doing back still doing 70,000 tons of grapes? And we're not worldwide known for our Chardonnay or our Pinot or whatever else we want to sell. So there's the model. So we've got a model. You can argue all you want. Look at the model that's successful and look at us. And we should be modeling ourselves against New Zealand. And you can't go wrong because they've been very successful. They have 3 million people in that country. And they sell five times as much uh, wine. 3 million people in Toronto. Isn't that what it is? Three four, million, four, four or five. five. Depending Depending on how far you I'm, I'm loving this man more and more. I really am. I liked Donald uh, long before this, but uh, we match. 
Okay, well, well, Donald, we you, Donald, you've, you've talked about, yeah, I guess, I guess. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to encourage the young people to step up to the plate because, you know, we built the schools, we've done our part. The reason I stepped aside when you said to me, would I go back at Eskel? No. Like, my time's done. I've done my piece. There's a lot of very talented young people in the industry. And, I mean, I could go and name them. You know them because you're, the, you know, you're tasting a lot of their wines because you guys are good at giving these guys a break. But they got to step up, you know, and, and I keep saying Norm Hardy, but there's the specs. There's Crispino who came into the industry later, uh, you know, with Foreign Affairs doing the Apacimento. So there's all kinds of great opportunities that we have in this industry. And I think it's going to be nothing but, you know, more success. But young people need to uh, take it, take them, take the baton from us guys and, and go. Well, well, Donald, what's the, what, what did you do different that we're talking about a lot of the new people and you took in a skill in from a small winery to a big winery and a lot of the wineries who were there at the foundation Hillebrand, Chateau de Charme uh, are also in the category of big or at least big for Ontario but it just seems to be that we haven't had anyone else kind of rise up rise up to the occasion and I, I mean there aren't any wineries that have kind of grown to the level of being big winery at least uh you know, certainly not a lot of movement in the decade that I've been living in Ontario. Well, I think, you know, I, I didn't, I'm not, they're not, you know, I'm not doing, I didn't do anything different than anybody did. They're all doing their piece and there are, you know, a lot more competition. Now, there's 140 wineries, I think now, is there not? There's more than that. More than, more than that. that. Yeah. So I there's think, a lot I, of wineries. So. I think we're at, I think we're at uh, uh, 200. Well, if, you, yeah. if you, if you, if you count everybody, you know, that yeah, includes, yeah. um, Fruit wineries yeah. and yeah. and everybody, but so there's you know there's a lot of competition, but I I think you know a guy like Norm Hardy, man, he's doing it. You know, he, I, I heard he was in South Africa selling wine recently. So, you know, I, I think that's great because obviously he had a connection when he worked there, so he took the opportunity. So I think all of them are doing great work. You know, Taz, Maury Taz, mm. you know, like you know he's sunk some big bucks into it. He's doing very organic. Paul, his wine. Maker is very, very good. He's got two wineries, too. Two, yeah, he's yeah. got Redstone now. Redstone now. I haven't been yet to the restaurant. I, I, I got to go. So I, I think they're all doing a, a lot of things. I, I just, and it's not in any way criticizing, I just would like to see people, you know, the young people step up and, you know, start to take ownership of the industry. Because I think they're the ones that have the new creative ideas that have got fresh ideas just like the consumer has, because the consumer now has taken over in in the marketplace because they can, they dominate, they dictate what happens. And you can see that by the uh, the wines that are being sold in the marketplace. That's the dead air that we were looking for. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for Ron to say something. We've been cutting you off all uh, all evening, and I, we gave you a chance to... To pipe in there, and it's just sort of letting letting that sink in as far as far as vision for the future. So, uh, I have to tell you, Andre, and uh, you really you you really are missing out because I want to rub this in because I usually okay. rub it in on Gamay, but this time this wine is getting better and better. Mm -hmm. It has not mm -hmm. died in the glass in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I am. Um, I gotta say, you know, I've, I've been a bit of a skeptic on on red wine potential in Ontario, other than Cab Franc and and Pinot Noir, but this is amazing. This wine is showing amazingly well. <laughs> it's, it is. It's we're we're going to polish off the bottle. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, more power to the guys that want to keep doing it. Because, you know, that's the thing about the winemakers. If you tell them, you know, it's hard to do, they're going to do it. Because that's yeah. the thing they love. They all love challenges because, you know, there's so many opportunities. And the competition globally, it's staggering. Yeah. I, I think staggering. Ontario offers them a challenge because, yeah. as you said, where are you growing those grapes? Yeah. You said that earlier. Okay. Where are you growing those grapes? And you're talking Pinot Noir, you're talking Cab Franc, yeah. and and to come to Canada and and you know yeah. grow grapes, make wine. Yeah. That's like last that's year. Look at last year. I mean, a lot of people took a beating. Oh yeah. Last year, and the farmers, you know, took a real beating because a lot of the vineyards got destroyed because of the cold weather, and this whole climate change issue, which you know people like Torres and others are responding. I mean, they're moving their vineyards in Spain a thousand meters up the hills. Because they know that, you know, in 10, 15 or 50 years, when those vineyards start to, you know, really get into classic production, they're going to have a problem because the wines are going to be too hot. Yep. And, well, you know, even if it's red, if it's too hot, that's just as bad as being too cold. Katana had a good idea when he moved up the mountain, right? <laughs> well, that's that. We also have an we're also at an interesting point now where we're using technology. And I know you've talked about the schools and the, and the we have the research stations down in, in 
uh, St. Catharines as well dealing with that. That uh, I mean, you have Prince Edward County, you have a whole wine region that buries their vines in the winter. And even yes. though the uh, wineries in Niagara were thrashed by the two cold winters in a row, yeah. Uh, Prince Edward Lake County, Erie, Lake, Lake Erie North Shore basically died right out. Yes, they yeah. had almost no vintage. Well, when we started, I mean, we buried our vines too, and you know, of course, culturally, you know, you learn, you know, Prince Edward County, they're challenged. You know, they, you know, that's amazing that they accept that challenge. But I think the technology component of it, you know, that's all part of the evolution, and I think that you know that's going to continue to be to our advantage, because technology, you know, becomes very important in in quality winemaking, and the fact that we have the both the college, uh, Niagara College, and, and Covey here. And we, you know, attract a lot of, you know, these seminars that are done, attract a lot of international talent that, you know, you pick up little ideas from here and there. So I, I think the industry's, you know, certainly got the potential as it's shown to, you know, to, to grow. It, we got to get out of the marketplace. So in my opinion, we got to get out globally a little more. Because one thing about Canada, I can tell you, as soon as I got recognition outside of Canada, the Grand Prix, the Nair being an example. But, you know, it, it's the same with Gretzky and everybody else. Celine Dion. As soon as you get recognized outside the country, everybody in Canada loves you. Yeah, you get embraced by the country itself. Right. So it's just a phenomenon with Canada, whether it's film or whether it's whatever. Every, every year, my wife and I go to New York for Thanksgiving, and I bring a case to the dinner of Ontario wine. And everybody loves it. And I've written about it before. I said, they love us. You know, it's okay to love us. And, you know, they just like, where, where is this from? I'm like, it's from Ontario. And they're like, wow, I didn't know you guys made wine up there. And it's just. Michael, i got to tell you one thing. Stop calling it Ontario. Because I'll give you an example. Ontario is a province in Canada, which, you know, is important to the provincial government. But otherwise, it's Niagara, Okanagan, Prince Edward County. But more importantly, Canada. I'll give you an example. I was in uh, China. First time we did a big event. A guy named Keith Edgar, who just did India for me, was at the Hilton Hotel. It was the first big wine event, black tie. Mark Jouet from Toronto came as the chef. Canadian government paid for it. We broadcast back with uh, Howard uh, Ballack, the ambassador, to uh, uh, the LCBO store. Andy Brandt was hosting. And whole, it was a big big deal, right? So I got up and spoke. Uh, Tabucci was the minister at the time for Ontario. was getting up to speak after Mark Jouet, the chef. And the ambassador and Tabuchi, the minister of the LCBO, started talking about all the trade that China was doing with Ontario, et cetera, et cetera. And he kept referring to Ontario. And the Spanish ambassador sitting beside me nudged me and he said, Donald, he said, what's this thing Ontario he keeps talking about? <laughs> so, and I say that because when you're outside the country, it's about Canada. Because, you know, we have a great reputation as a country. So when you add the Okanagan and and uh, Niagara, and I use those two because there are others, Prince Edward yep. County, Similkameen, and everybody else. It's, it's the bigger. The, but when you say Canada, people pay attention. And you, that Canadian flag means, you know, fresh air, quality, all of the things that people love. And that's why I'm big on the ice wine. But it's Canada. So I, I, I just got to put that out there because more of us got to be talking about Canada because it's what, you know, that flag means a lot. And now with this young guy we got who's, in my opinion, really – do an extraordinary job of being prime minister. He's become like a, a he's a rock star. A rock star. He really is. <laughs> That's right. And he, I, like I, Prince, I, think I saw Prince uh, Harry, Harry yep. hanging out with him. Obama talks about him at some dinner the other night. No, I think the American magazines were all over him. Yeah, they were, yeah, they were yeah. thinking the yeah. first time they've done a uh, what was it, a state dinner, Andre, in twenty years. Yes, they, years. And, yes. You know, uh, Sophie was featured in every fashion magazine she shouldn't you know, sing but other than that well you know why not it's like people you know like bill clinton played the saxophone yeah, well. so I, I i think that's great because you know here we are again canadians you know he's getting great recognition all over the world and you know we're kind of worried about him a little bit because he's a young guy he's just just a teacher but listen he's done amazing things you know now that he's gone outside and been recognized by all these people outside canada now we're you know going to jump in there and you know really Say wow, this guy! Yeah, now we're now we're minister. now we're proud of him. Yeah, <laughs> and more power to him. I think he's done a phenomenal job. Well, I guess uh, one thing that you can you can touch on it is how can we sort of fix it? I mean, it's interesting. It's like you said, and it's absolutely true that uh, we don't take a, we don't appreciate what we have until the world uh, really pays attention to it. 
it's almost like we don't believe it's it's gonna be that Canadians are are polite to a fault where the point they don't believe that we're capable of, of manufacturing something world class or producing something world class. I don't I, maybe our modesty is our best advantage, but you know I, I think we're doing a great job. A, a good example of something that's fantastic in my opinion is um, uh, Peller in Niagara Lakes building a Wayne Gretzky winery right beside. Hillebrand. Right behind you. But it's right in the intersection. It's got Wayne Gretzky. It's going to, I mean, I don't know what the building's going to look like, but just the fact that his name's going to be plastered there, that's the kind of thing that we got to tell the world. You know, because the guy's known by worldwide. I mean, the great one. I mean, the people that we call the great one in Canada. So here we have an opportunity to piggyback for his ice wine. I mean, I'd like to hang out with him just to sell ice wine because, you know, he'd do a much better job than I would have saying, you know, I love ice wine, I make ice wine, let's all drink it. And if you think about it, it's right in the heart of Niagara-on-the-Lake, right in the heart of it. It's They built you, this traffic circle, and it looked like it was part of the design. Yep, <laughs> amazing. So so the bottom line is we're going to have to make the rest of the world love us before we love ourselves. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, we got all <laughs> the talent because we got all these young people, you know, and they got the energy to travel around and get to see the world. And as I said to you, the... The wine community will embrace us because we make a great product. And I've had that experience. As I said, yeah, I talked about Piero Antinori, Robert Mondavi. When I asked Robert Mondavi to be on the letterhead for the Covey uh, Advisory Committee, I said, listen, Robert, you know, I appreciate, you know, that I can call you. And I said, but, you know, you don't really need to do anything. He said, I'm not interested. And I, I, I thought I was going to, you know, my heart sank. And he said, if you think I'm going to put my name on that letterhead and do nothing, he said, that's bullshit. He said, I want to be involved. I want to help you, et cetera, et cetera. So the wine community will do it. We just need to be out there and, you know, shout it from the rooftops and tell everybody how great we are. I keep going back to this wine. That's pretty damn good wine. It's, it's getting better and better. It hurts, and I love it hurts that I'm on the other side of this we'll microphone. Say, you should save them some. I see you poured the whole bottle. <laughs> what can I do with it? <laughs> It's I'm all right. I'm sure I'm, I'm, seeing you, Andre. I'm sure I've got something that uh, that I can open a little bit later to uh, to drown my tears into. So so here's here's a question that I don't know if it's been posed to you ever. It probably has. You've probably heard everything. But when did you finally you started in 74, okay? When did you finally see a profit, not revenue, profit? You actually well, saw that's money. That's a good question. I, I don't I think I I mean I can't really remember, but you know when you're young and you know you're starting out you don't take a salary, you kind of cut corners, you know, and that. The only thing we did was we were fortunate because Carl made the wine, I sold it. And I was running a nursery at the time. He was, um, <clears throat> he was at school, I think, still. So when did we make a profit? I can tell you, when we really started making a lot of money, ice wine. I mean, that phenomenon was brilliant because we discovered very quickly that once we got this award, the Japanese loved it. And the more we charged, the more they loved it. And there's one thing about wine. I actually put in a bid the other day on a raffle for the Shaw Theater. And the top prize in the raffle was a bottle of 2001 Screaming Eagle. $9,140. Now, if you can figure out that scam, that's a great gig. <laughs> you know, and the only thing I can tell is that it's an exclusive vineyard mm -hmm. made by a female winemaker that's sold only on a mailing list. Correct. So, you know, that's cool. Or, you know, if you're doing Petrus and so on, but Petrus has got thousands of years of history. So, you know, anybody that wants to get in the wine business, you know, there's a saying, if you want to make a small fortune in the wine business, start with a big one. No. But it's a passion. You know, people do it historically. It's been done in, you know, in Europe as, you know, the evolution, the monks started it. I mean, even the monastery in uh, Portugal, where I'm at now at Sonora Convento, it's a 12th century monastery started by the Cistercians. I'm still making wine there. Yep. So it's been there a long time. And, you know, in California, you've got the whole phenomena of the, the Mondavi families, the Martini families, and then the Silicon Valley people moved in, starting building multi-million dollar wineries with art galleries. And you're getting the same thing in Niagara. The Asian phenomena now, you know, there's yep. about seven or eight wineries now that have bought wineries here in Niagara that are Asians, but Chinese. Sad, sadly, they seem to be going more on the ice wine. They are going ice wine because that's what they know. But at least they're bringing money in and, you know, they're taking over a few facilities that, you know, somebody wanted to move. So hopefully they will bring some serious money into the industry because you need 
some serious capital if you want to do premium. That's why I love Maury Toss because Maury has never spent, you know, he's never stopped spending money to make the best wine he can. And, you know, it shows in the product. And that's basically, and I've always believed that. You produce the best quality, charge a lot of money for it, and then you'll sell it. Interesting. So it's it's simple. It's it's simple to uh, to push the industry it's forward. Really, it's really yeah. simple. It's easy. Don't yeah. worry. It's like starting Facebook. It seemed like such a simple idea. <laughs> well, I, I guess the, the the last question to to cap off the uh, to cap off the interview is where do you see the industry heading? Let's just say ten years down the road. Do you think in ten years will it will be where we should be in terms of the uh, international recognition and maybe we'll start loving our own wines? Wow. Ten years. I mean, that's a long time in this time frame of you know technology. But yeah, we will get there eventually. The specialization is starting already. I mean, people are getting known for specific, you know, Vineland estates with Riesling, in a skillin with ice wine, uh, Malavoir with um, Gamay, Cave Springs with um, their Chardonnay. So yeah, that's you know an evolution where I think you get as you get specialized as most of the wine regions in the world, you'll get better and better at it as you get more focused. The younger generation I think is also going to be more open-minded. I mean, there's a bit of discussion, for example, on the VQA, which I know Michael's always throwing his two cents in, and I always quietly rebut some of his arguments. Some I agree, some I disagree. <laughs> but there's a you know there's an evolution in the VQA. We made the rules because at the time we started it, it was intended to distinguish it from the blended wines so that you knew it was 100% Appalachian. And we did things that we thought at the time was the right thing to do. But, you know, the industry's evolving. Apacimento wasn't, it didn't exist, so we created Apacimento rules. You know, there's this whole discussion about, quote, natural wines. Yes. And, you know, whether it's uh, Norm Hardy or Pierre Morissette that feel that their wines are, are distinctly different because of the style so we create a category. I mean, it, you know, let's evolve and let's make it an evolution and continue to improve the wines and expand them. The rules aren't as rigid as in France. We don't say how many hectares or how many hectoliters per hectare you can produce. But we do stop certain grapes from being... We do because that's an international rule. Because if you were to stick New York Muscat into the varieties that were accepted by the VQA, you wouldn't be able to sell it in the European Union. Well, why is Roussan out? Roussan... It's uh, it is. I think so. Mm, shouldn't be. It is. So those I are can international fact rules. That right if you don't now. follow the OIV rules, then you can't sell in the. In, and we were very careful when we set up the VQA to harmonize our rules with the OIV, which is the Organisation d'Institut du Vin, so that we could sell our wines in Europe. Because uh, Q Vineyards makes a Marsan Roussan, mm -hmm. but they put Marsan on the label, but they can't put Roussan on the label. I'd have to investigate that to give you an answer, but. I can tell you that we did everything to harmonize it, but I do agree that the VQA also needs to evolve and there needs to be changes and the people need to look at what it is that, you know, we do. Sparkling wines, for example, you know, we are not champagne. No. So we make sparkling wine. So you create a, a bit of a parameter because, you know, you need some, I'm not going to call them rules, some guidelines so that the consumer knows what he's getting. So when it says VQA, he's going to know that it's not, wine that's blended from California or Chile or Australia. What do you think of us still being able to blend? Blend imported wines? Yeah. I guess, you know, if you have to. You know, well, we really don't have to. Like, let's be honest, we really well, don't, we don't have, have to. We don't have enough production. We'd have to get some serious production in the ground because, you know, there's enough land in the peninsula that we could still expand significantly. And that's one of the reasons that I very adamantly because I was on the Greenbelt Task Force, and I took my beatings. I still have the lashes on my back <laughs> for trying to, you know. He showed me them earlier. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we got to look to the future, because eventually when we need that land to produce, you know, look at West St. Catharines. I mean, it just annoys me that, you know, we're, like we're just moving out to West St. Catharines. going to go out there and build a hospital. Why don't we put it at Brock University or put it in downtown St. Catharines where, you know, it's a ghetto. So we're going out there and taking a beautiful vineyard land to put up, construction buildings you know i mean don't get me started on that one so you know down the road 20 years from now or you said 10 years when we need 250,000 tons of grapes where are we going to get them you can't grow them above the escarpment you got to grow them here so we got to preserve some of the land so these young farmers and future generations but you got to make money so you know you got to figure it out it's not for me to figure out but you know down the road 
you know, we're going to be like Burgundy where you sell a piece of land for $2.5 million a hectare. It'll be here eventually. Napa Valley's three, $400,000 U.S. an acre. But people find find places to to develop, right? I mean, Prince Edward County is still affordable right now, and we got wineries popping up literally everywhere in the province at Can this I offer point. You something else? Uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you, but, you know, it's like Burgundy or Bordeaux. You know, you don't hear a lot of new wine regions in France getting started because it probably take them a couple hundred years to get recognized. But, you know, if you say Bordeaux or Burgundy, you don't have to sell yourself because, you know, you're paying two and a half million dollars. But why does somebody pay two and a half million? Because you can sell a bottle of Le Montrachet for 150 bucks a bottle. You grow a Chardonnay in uh, Lungaduck, how much are you going to get for it? How much? 20 Maybe. So, you know, there's this magnificent aura about wine. You know, that the Appalachians are important where the terroir, you know, which we're kind of buying into in North America, you know, Europe, you know, they live by it. I belong to the Académie du Vin, which is a very privileged group that I was asked to join. And A, they don't speak any language but French. Somewhat arrogant, but that's the way they are. And to them, this whole aspect of terroir is what wine's all about. If the wine doesn't express the character of the terroir, which is more than just the soil, it's the entire ambiance of wine, the climate, etc. But, you know, they get compensated for it. You know, they get big bucks. I mean, when's the last time you bought a bottle of Chateau Petrus or Moutal Rothschild? It's out of my price range. Oh, yeah. I, I, I've, no, that's... And, and, but, I mean, here's the thing. is it's, it's not even... Because it's so out of reach, it's not even something that enters my brain as something I'm, I'm looking oh, to try. I, 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 I disagree with you. I mean, it would definitely interest your palate. Hey, if someone's going to... It always interests my palate. Yes. Just, it doesn't interest my pocketbook. Yeah, it's because you can't afford it. But, you know, when you get to be... When you get that money... Because look at what everybody who gets rich does. They buy a wine cellar, right? Well, wine, wine is the biggest... Uh, investment. Investment. Yeah. As it is. Uh, it, it outpaces the yeah. Fortune 500. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, I have the list of permitted varietals in front of me from the VQA. Yeah, the authorized variety from the VQA has really been vetted by the OIV. So I, I, this whole issue of not being allowed to do that, there are a lot of these little quirks that need to be ironed out, and it happens all the time. I mean, yeah, Michael, which which varietal is it that uh, I believe Roussan is uh, not allowed. Spelt R O R O U S S N N E. Right. It, it, it is not on the list. Not on the list. Yeah. But Does, Marsan is M-A-R-S-A-N-N-E. Marsan is on the list. Is on the list. Interesting. Well, there's probably a reason. You know, if you call the... Um, but they are being grown. It's grown in, at Q Vineyards, which I believe... Uh, you can grow anything you want. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and they actually... See, that's the restriction here is not growing grapes. It's making wine. And the problem is that when we went for the international wine standards on ice wine, we had to get all the country... In agreements, we had VQA Ontario and we had VQA BC on side, but then you had British Columbia. Uh, sorry, not British Columbia. You had the Maritimes who wanted New York Muscat, and then you had the guys in Quebec who wanted to clip the vines and let them freeze after they hung them separate from the vines that they buried. That's fine if you want to do that as a Canadian rule, and you can sell it in Canada. Fine, all more power to you. You just can't sell it in the international market because the OIV, which dictates the rules of engagement for the European Union says that you can only have authorized writing. Now, one thing that I do give full credit to Monsieur Jacques Puiset, still alive, when we were negotiating for 17 years for the uh, agreement between the European Union and Canada, as Australia signed to get rid of Champagne, Burgundy, Chablis, Port, all those things, Vidal is a hybrid. Vidal is a hybrid. Hybrids are not allowed in the... Uh, approved varietals. So the Appellation Controle of France does not allow Vidal to be made into wine. You can make it Vidal, but then you sell it as Vin Ordinaire. Yeah. Jacques Puiset, because he had tasted the ice wine and said, guys, this is a Canadian phenomena, and Vidal, even though it's a French hybrid and it's not allowed, I am going to propose that that be allowed. It got in, and if it wasn't for Jacques Puiset, it never would have happened, because he's like the guru of Bordeaux, and he allowed it. Hmm. It's approved variety. No other hybrid is allowed to be made into wine to be shipped to Europe because it's not on the authorized list. Interesting. So well, there's little quirks, you know, that I mean we could go on. I mean, this is great. I love talking to you guys because the fact it's being recorded should be interesting because I'm going to play it to some 
people and see what the feedback. <laughs> my website, that's on my uh, Facebook. But I, these are the things that I think people, and that's why I say we need a uniform voice, because everybody needs to sit around the table, you included. Because when we did the VQA, I must tell you, we went to Centro's, and I got Franco Provedella to serve pizza to all the media, and I said, guys, here's the rules and regulations of the VQA. We've been to France. We've been beat up by the ENAL. I remember Madame Benhamé saying to me, you can't have Appalachians in Canada. You don't have enough history. And I said, well, that's why we're doing it. No, it doesn't, you cannot. Canada, you know, Canada, forget it. It's not going to happen. So she was not interested in talking to us about how we could harmonize our rules to meet the regulations. And that's including, you know, what you can find the wine with, you know, the barrels you use, et cetera, all those rules and regulations have, how many yield, the yield per hectare. She, her opinion was, forget it. Not going to happen because Canada's, you know, you guys make wine in Canada, you know? <laughs> Again, where are you planning the Pinot Noir? <laughs> I want to thank Donald very much for uh, for agreeing to talk to us. And uh, it's going to take me a little bit to sit and digest all this information. And uh, thank you very much for giving us the time. And he was very open uh, with us. So uh, we really appreciate your, your time, Donald. Thank oh, you very good. much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it very much. It's nice to be able to air my... Uh thoughts and philosophies uh, so hopefully people will pick it up and I hope we get people get pissed off because that's how people react so hopefully they'll react positively and they'll do things that are going to benefit the industry in the long term vote Trump <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening you can subscribe at twoguystalkingwine.com